everybody, welcome to Overdue. I'm Craig. I'm Andrew. And we got another drop for you, Andrew. What kind of drop we got? A feed drop. Feed drop. Now, that doesn't mean we're dropping food on the floor. Craig, what does a feed drop mean? A feed drop means that we have another show that we think you might want to listen to, so we put it on our feed and we feed it to your ears. (laughs) And then you drop your phone because of what I just said. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, that's right. Uh, no this... corrections, no additions. <laughs> Got it in one. This one is for the history of literature. Andrew, what do you know about the history? Just like not the show. What do you just know about the history of literature? I mean, printing press. Yeah, that wasn't Eli Whitney. That was the cotton gin. Printing press, Eli Whitney, cotton gin, lots but of other books. As far as I know, Eli Whitney invented anything that happened before, like. Steve Jobs. <laughs> I was gonna. I was wondering if you were gonna make the leap from from printing press to cotton gin. To These iPhone. are the inventions that I know. It's probably some monk invented the printing press. But anyway, the answer to your question is not a whole lot. Great. Well, I have a show for you and our listeners to listen to. Again, it's called The History of Literature. It's a show that covers everything from the life and works of literary giants to lighthearted topics like Best of the Bard, Shakespeare's Greatest Lines. Wait, is that a question? No. <laughs> Okay. I was trying to honor the lightheartedness of that episode. Okay. Um, host Jack Wilson and his guests have explored countless books, seeking out the most. I think you can count them, actually. There's a number of episodes. There's a literal number of them. But um, but it would be really high, and you don't have yeah. to do it if you don't want to. Uh, and they seek out unusual, compelling, and inspiring stories from the world of literature. Recent guests, there are plenty of guests on the show, include Jenny Minton Quigley, uh, who wrote a whole new book about Lolita, I think, and Patricia Engel. The episode you're about to hear is about the Tolstoy classic Anna Karenina, which, Andrew, we, maybe we'll get to someday. I think we've been saying maybe we'll do some more Russian literature. Yeah, for years <laughs> for a we've long been time. Saying. But you know, you know what's long is Russian literature. You know what's not long, but is an enjoyable uh, duration of time is this episode on Anna Karenina, which you could listen to. Um, Jack has an in-depth discussion with his frequent co-host Mike, and I think folks will dig their like discussion of characters as well as the book's background. They kind of go back and forth in the same way that we do. Uh, and you'll also hear one of Jack's regular mailbag segments early on, which should give you a sense of like the tone of the show and what you'll be in for when you tune into more episodes. I think that is really useful when folks are like discovering new pods, Andrew, to like get a representative sample of what's going to happen. Yeah. So that you're not, you know, it. this feels like a classic ep. When I listened mm-hmm. to it, I was like, this seems like you know what's going to come down the pike for the rest of the catalog. Mm-hmm. Um, the history of literature is brought to you by the Podglomerate, and new episodes run every Monday. Um, you can subscribe on Apple Pod or wherever else you're listening, and you can find out more at historyofliterature.com. Anna Karenina don't, don't want to be ya is what I have to say. I'm not. I'm not participating in this. <laughs> <laughs> i won't be a part of this but okay I'm, I'm glad that we're all here together and well enjoy the episode enjoy the episode have a good time with the feed drop hello in 1870 42 year old russian author leo tolstoy told his wife that he had a new idea for a novel one that would depict the fall of a woman from the highest ranks of St. Petersburg society, and to do so without condemning her. That book was Anna Karenina, and it's routinely viewed as one of the pinnacles of Western literature, and indeed of Western civilization. We've talked about Tolstoy before, but we have a special look at the novel today, thanks to our guest, Mike Palindrome the president of the Literature Supporters Club, who recently read the book as part of an online project in which hundreds of readers read the book in short installments every day, tweeting about their responses. Anna Karenina with Mike Palindrome, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, your host, Anna Karenina. 
There are very few novels you can put in this category. You could say a work like Ulysses is superior because it's more formally innovative, or a work like Proust's Remembrance of Things Past is just an incredible artistic achievement. But for novels that do what most people want novels to do, which is to tell a great story, Anna Karenina is on everyone's short list. It has been for 150 years, and I suspect it will be for another 150. It's a wonderful book. I don't often say that you need to read certain books. You all know me by now. You know that I much more typically say that life is short. There are a lot of great books out there. Read what you want. Read whatever you're reading. Just read it in a good way where you challenge yourself to be a better person as you're reading, and after you're reading, let that book become a part of you. Find books that will let you grow as you read and think and stretch and feel. But Anna Karenina, I'll go ahead and say that this is probably one that should be on your list if you haven't read it yet. If you're going to be reading novels at all, this is one you should include for consideration. Okay, so what do we have today? We'll have some emails and we'll have our conversation with Mike. But before we do that, let's talk a little about this amazing book, Anna Karenina. The opening line is one of the great opening lines in all literature. I think Mike refers to it later in the episode as all happy marriages are alike. Every unhappy marriage is unhappy in its own way. That must be his translation. I think mine has it as all happy families are alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. That's worth unpacking a little bit, which I'll do in a moment. I wanted to tell you that this was not Tolstoy's first idea for the opening line of the book. His wife tells us the story. She says that an aunt of theirs was reading a book to Tolstoy's son. The book was Pushkin's Tales of Bielkin. The aunt fell asleep while reading and eventually went to bed, leaving the book behind. Tolstoy picked it up and read the opening passage, beginning with the words, The guests were arriving at the country house of Count L., How good, how simple, Tolstoy said. Straight to business, that's the way to write. Pushkin is my master. And then in 1872, when he drafted the opening of Anna Karenina, it began, everything was in a muddle in the house of the Oblonskys. There we go. That's straight to business too. That's Tolstoy. So much of Tolstoy aspires to be like that, to be omniscient and invisible, not to be too showy, not to make the reader think of the author, but to let the reader slide straight into the realism of the novel, straight to business. We are at the train station, we are in the fields, we are at the parties, we live and dream and hope and die with these characters. We hate, too, and we blame and we judge and we resist judgment. We aspire. And we also feed the horses and drink with the peasants and eat and speak French. (laughs) Eat. We don't eat French. We eat and speak French and grow cold and all the other things that people do. Now I'm going to have people complaining. Ah, Jack Wilson found cannibalism in Anna Karenina. Characters eating French. There's a comma there, people. And eat, comma, and speak French, comma, and grow cold, comma, and all the other things that people do in real life, or did in real life in 19th century Russia. That's one great impulse of Tolstoy's in these novels, to be realistic like that. The other impulse is is toward a kind of morality, a, a, an infusion of being better, of improving whether that's through Christianity or another mechanism. There's a a great making of plans and a self-analysis, self-evaluation. What is life? Is life worth living? How should life be lived? And here, I think the omniscience of the narrator has another role, one less invisible. It's to comment. It's to philosophize. It's to explain. When Tolstoy is at his finest, these twin impulses are in balance. Anna Karenina has that balance. There's a perfect opening line. Everything was in a muddle in the house of the Oblonskys. Yes, that works. That's straight to business. Let's see the house. Let's hear about the muddle. Realistic fiction. Here we come. But if there's an even more perfect line than that, it's all happy families are alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Yes. Tell us about that. Make us think. Preview for us what we're going to see in this great book. These 800 pages we're about to 
embark upon make us think not just about the Oblonskys and their muddle, which is kind of a good, maybe a good short story opening, but how we care about one another as human beings. Put that in our minds. Challenge us with a little light philosophy. Is it true? Is that sentence true? I remember resisting it when I was younger, maybe because I came from a happy family, and I thought my family was unusual. It was my family. Wasn't it unique? No one else had the same degree of happiness, the same level of happiness. Outsiders couldn't know. Why was I being lumped together with all the other happy families? Well, I've dropped that objection now. I know what Tolstoy means. He means that we enjoy success, but we live in our failure. He means that conflict is kinetic and lack of conflict is static. He means that happiness is friction-free, but friction and tension and explosion and disruption are where all our thoughts go. If those are present, if there's a source of unhappiness in your family, it dominates. And the cause of that unhappiness creates a difference. I'm still not totally convinced that he's right in sort of a theoretical way, but I can see where he's headed. He's going to diagnose sources of unhappiness. That will be the project of the book. He has a lot of characters in Anna Karenina, but two main relationships are at the heart of the book. He, here's some spoilers. If you're really anti-spoiler, you might want to read the book now and come back to this episode later. One relationship is the unhappy marriage of Anna Karenina and her husband, who's something of a dullard, which leads her toward an affair with Vronsky, which in turn leads her toward her doom. Now, you may notice that another classic work, Madame Bovary, has a very similar basic plot. Anna Karenina came 15 or 20 years or so after Madame Bovary. Tolstoy was in France when that book was published. There was a great controversy about it. I'm sure he heard about it. I'm sure it was somewhere in his mind when he began writing Anna Karenina, but the comparison might be a little overblown. English poet Matthew Arnold was one of the first to note the similarity, and he also gave one of the best descriptions of the main difference. Emma Bovary, says Arnold, follows a course in some respects like that of Anna, but where in Emma Bovary is Anna's charm? The treasures of compassion, tenderness, insight, which alone, amid such guilt and misery, can enable charm to subsist and to emerge, are wanting to Flaubert. He is cruel, with the cruelty of petrified feeling, to his poor heroine. Tolstoy is not cruel to Anna, Remember his goal, describe her fall without condemning her, and loving her, too. That's another goal. Readers love her for the most part. We're encouraged to love her. We watch characters fall in love with her. Her affair is a lustful one, a carnal relationship. It's contrasted with the other great relationship in the novel, a very close-to-home look at the marriage of Kitty and Levin, which had a lot of similarities to Tolstoy's own marriage. That could have been its own book. Instead, we get the two in a kind of point and counterpoint to one another. And when you're reading about one, you wonder about what's happening with the other, and vice versa. It's rare for a book to have two stories this good, and yet to also make each other better. I would insert my requisite Beatles reference here. John and Paul work just like this, people. But at this point, I feel like you guys probably just go ahead and insert those references on your own. It's something that never fails to fascinate me, whether I hear it in a song or see Tolstoy making it work in a novel. Okay, let's take a quick break, hear from a few listeners, and then come back with Mike Palindrome and Anna Karenina. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, is the epigraph of the novel. What's the vengeance here in Anna Karenina? Maybe that would spoil things too much. It's vengeance of a heartbreaking sort. Knowing that Tolstoy had that in mind as he wrote, it's almost too much to bear. Here's what's not too much to bear. Listener emails. We'll start with one from William. Subject, nice. 
I just discovered your History of Literature podcast and enjoyed the one on Shakespeare's 18th sonnet. Your Beatles metaphor was cleverly effective. I think it's good that Shakespeare did not identify an individual. Everyone has their own tastes of beauty and attraction. This way, the sonnet can fit all readers. Cheers, William. Well, thank you, William. I'm glad you like the Beatles metaphor. See, people? I try not to indulge myself too much, but hey, I gotta give the people what they want. It's called fan service. I agree with you, William. (laughs) Ah. Which intern wrote this script? Honestly. I agree with you, William, that Shakespeare's Sonnet 18 benefits from some generalities, though I do think there's some validity to the criticism that love sonnets can sometimes be too much about the speaker. There's a balance there that needs to be struck, but I went into that during the episode, so I won't rehash it all here. Thank you for the email. Next email, here's one from Alexander, subject, Brothers Karamazov episode. Jack, I've been listening to your podcast since you started it, or very nearly, but I haven't heard as moving an episode as the one on the Brothers Karamazov. Dare I say it was a work of art on its own merit. I'm a land surveyor in North, in, well, North Carolina, I'm assuming, in NC. I'm a land surveyor in NC who is also an English major, and your podcast has impelled my reading over the years. Recently, like so many others, I lost my job. Though this may sound like a bad thing, I've decided to go back to graduate school for literature while the world simmers down, and I can tell you your podcast has been among my inspirations. Thanks from a long time and continuing listener. Alexander. Wow. Alexander, first of all, I'm very sorry to hear that you lost your job. And I'm wishing you all the best in that respect. I think going to study literature is a good move, and I hope it works out for you. Literature has been good to me over the years, not really in a financial sense so much, but in a more spiritual sense. And so I recommend the transition. Good luck to you as you make yours. Now, the Brothers Karamazov episode, episode 250. As those of you who listened will no doubt recall, That episode was inspired by a beautiful and heart-wrenching email from a listener who recently lost a child and who is trying to recover from that, if recover is even the right word, trying to live, trying to manage. Literature is one of the means of doing so for this listener, as it would be for me as well, I'm sure. It was a special episode. It felt that way from the beginning, from the very planning stages. You may have noted that I missed an episode the week before, It was purely because of that, because it was a hard episode to do. I felt it so hard. I felt the pain of it, and I felt a sense of duty. I just wanted to do what I could. I didn't want to screw it up, and I couldn't just chatter away as usual. I had to dig deep. And so, Alexander, you can probably imagine my feeling of relief And gratitude to hear that the episode resonated with you. I'm glad that it did. It struck a chord with a lot of people, actually. I was flooded with emails from people who've had similar tragedies in their lives. You're not alone, everyone. It's painful. And we can follow Tolstoy and say that such pain is always painful in its own way. So you're alone in that sense. But not alone in the sense that we're all out here. Our hearts going out to you, to all the people with all the pain and all the suffering that's going on, whether that's illness or disease or death, whether it's losing a job or losing a loved one or a relationship ending. What was that line in that email we heard last time from our Dostoevsky fan? We met, it was done. Actually, I've got the line committed to memory. It was such a good line. She went to college in New York, so we met halfway, and it was done. It's a great line. There's a famous line in Stendhal. I can't remember the first half, but the second half is, and all his thoughts changed. I love lines like that. I love little twists, little jolts, little starts, things that make you sit up in your chair. So we met halfway, and it was done. So much life is hinted at there. So much pain and hard living goes into that little sentence. Ah. These agonies, and yet something life-affirming, too. And now I'm getting to Anna Karenina. Mike and I talk about these very points in our conversation. The sorrows that Tolstoy Tolstoy suffered from 
when writing this novel, the pain that he had and the sorrow that works its way into the book. It's full of pain, saturated with it, but it's full of epiphanies too, full of ecstasy and joy and promise. And there's a joy that comes from Tolstoy just celebrating life through his observational powers. Saul Bellow is like this too. The kind of book that works like smelling salts. These books wake you up. They shake you out of your stupor. They make you want to go experience some more things. So let's take one more break, then come back with Mike Palindrome and Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. Okay, joining me now is our old friend Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike is here to talk about one of the world's greatest works of literature, the novel Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature podcast. Hey, Jack. So you recently did a special reading of Anna Karenina. Tell us about the Twitter project. Well, we first, we we ended up doing about five and a half months of Tolstoy. We we. We read War and Peace and mm. a clip of 12 pages a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it was done, and that was organized by a public space, um, the Brooklyn Journal. Mm-hmm. And it was online. And it was hosted by the writer Yu Yin uh, yep. Lee. Yep. And it was it was just amazing because she, she actually has read it, I think, 10 times. She reads it every year. Mm. And she used to even read it slower than 12 pages a day. Yeah. She said that she used to read like maybe like a page a day. But anyway... Right. After we were done, a bunch of us, I think The Economist wrote a piece about this book club and said that maybe there were like a thousand or two thousand readers worldwide. But after we were done, a bunch of us decided we'd um, keep reading some Tolstoy. And so we, we, we voted and we picked Anna Karenina. Well, actually, we voted on whether we should read this or Infinite Jest or Middle mm. March. Yeah. And Anna Karenina won. So we ended up reading um, Anna Karenina at around 12 pages a day. And so it was, it was really great because there were a lot of people, War and Peace was very fresh in our heads. So there was a lot of comparisons and a lot of uh, character comparisons and themes and comparisons of trees. I mean, it got very, it got very specific and fun. <laughs> right. And then now you're headed for Proust? We are. We're actually doing two book clubs. We're doing Herodotus, the histories. Oh, okay doing that uh, nine to 10 pages a day. We just started that today. <laughs> so if, if anyone's interested on, on Twitter, it's hashtag Herodotus together. You have, you have to learn how to spell it. Right. And then um, Proust together will start on in one, well, August 14th. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this uh, episode will come out before then. So that's good. People okay. will be able to join. They could probably, probably the easiest way might be to look for you at Literature SC where... It stands for Literature Supporters Club, where you'll be tweeting your reactions every day. And, and I guess if you include the hashtag, people can use that to check in with everyone else who's doing the same thing. Is that how it works? Yeah, it's a, it's it's so much fun. And you'd be surprised at how little time it takes. I think when I first started War and Peace at this pace, at night, it would just kind of hang over my head. You know, I'd be like eating dinner and thinking yeah. like, oh, I've got to read War and Peace. Um, but then it got to the point where I just, I couldn't believe I couldn't go on. I I really try to stick to the schedule. So I, I didn't read beyond the day's assignment. Mm, Right. So it was interesting. It was an interesting exercise in our reading habits. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to do this kind of like a draft, but not exactly. We'll take turns and you're going to provide an insight into Anna Karenina from the, your recent reading of it or things that you, either you gained or that someone else on Twitter pointed out to you or something like that. And then when it's my turn, I will provide some context for the book, either its origins or its ongoing influence. I've got some, some, uh, 
things outside the work that I'm going to throw in. So are you ready? I am, and I think we should um, issue a spoiler alert that oh, yeah. if, if, if you actually, I mean, it's possible, if you don't know what happens to Anna um, and you you want to keep that in, in suspense, read it first and then listen to this. Yeah, although I would say, yeah, that's good advice. Definitely, we don't want to spoil anything for anyone, but I would say it's a book where even if you know that, it doesn't really spoil the book. Yeah, I, I agree. think most people, I think it might even say it like on the back cover. <laughs> okay so what is your first insight into Anna Karenina I think it 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 has to be the idea that this is a woman's story mm. that it's it's and a, a bunch of people tweeted throughout the book is it really her story or not because there were periods where it felt like it wasn't her story and it was sort of the story of adultery mm -hmm. and marriage it opens with Anna's brother cheating on his wife, Dolly Oblonsky. He, he, he's cheating on his wife, Dolly, with their French au pair. Mm -hmm. And they have four kids. And he says that he sometimes forgets he's married and sometimes forgets that he has kids. Mm. And, and this is after he's cheated on the English au pair. Mm. So... I think that that that's in the first paragraph, first or second paragraph, you get that set up. So, so I think in the beginning, I think people sort of felt like it really wasn't her story. It was the story of marriage and whether it's possible to have a happy marriage. I mm -hmm. mean, it's that really famous line, the opening line, whether, you know, that happy marriages are similar and unhappy marriages are different. Yeah. Um, and so you get to meet, you get to see all these different unhappy marriages. And then you meet Anna and her marriage is, you know, her husband's kind of a bore and mm -hmm. he's, he constantly is, he's constantly making lists and prioritizing <laughs> um, what, how he should act. And he always puts Anna as a factor to consider last. <sighs> so, but I think, you know, the, it was, it was fascinating to see the back and forth between it, whether it's Anna's story or whether it's Levin's story. Levin mm. is the husband yeah. of Kitty and Kitty is Dolly's sister. So Levin really, oh, sorry. Levin, yeah. Levin really jumps off the page and he's kind oh, of the yeah. stand in for Tolstoy and, and, uh, Lev Tolstoy was another way of saying Leo Tolstoy and Levin. Um, right. Let me, uh, before we get to Levin, let me give you a quote from Tolstoy where mm. he said something to his wife, Sonia, after the book was written. He said, in order for a book to be good, one has to love its basic fundamental idea. Thus, in Anna Karenina, I loved the idea of the family. End quote. And that was one of the questions I was going to have for you is, is the basic fundamental idea of the book uh, mm -hmm. the family or is it Anna? Yeah, I mean, that that's it, it feels at during long stretches that it's definitely the family mm -hmm. and the way that. So when Anna's brother is committing this adultery, who swoop, swoops in to have a heart to heart with Dolly, but Anna? Mm. And Anna tries to save her brother's marriage. Later, when Anna has an affair with with Vronsky, everyone comes to visit Anna to try to save her marriage. Mm. So there's this clear message that messaging that, you know, if you can save the marriage, save it. Mm. And there are all these, you know, really rational. I, I, I mentioned Anna's husband's lists. But there, there are lots of, um, during sled rides, you have all these moments where characters are thinking through, like, well, am I staying in the marriage for the kids? Like, the kids really drain um, my energy and my sexual inclinations. And they're, they're, they're great sections where you almost forget that Anna exists. You almost forget Levin exists. And the side characters really pop out. Yeah, right. And yet, uh, as here's another quote from his wife who said, uh, he always shared with me his plans about work. And in 1870, he told me that he wanted to write a novel about the fall of a society woman in the highest Petersburg circles. 
And the task which he set himself was to tell the story of the woman and of her fall without condemning her. The idea was Larry mm-hmm. later carried out in his new novel, Anna Karenina. I will, I well remember the circumstances in which he began to write that novel. And I'll, I'll save that. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in one of my uh, interludes here. But, you know, I guess it was, I guess the real answer is that it's both. He, he had this idea that he wanted to write about this woman who falls out of high society, but he didn't want it to just be the story of her. He wanted to expand it to include a story about uh, her family and kind of families in general. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's a real lesson to to writers that had you stripped away the novel just to the Anna chapters, it probably would work. Mm. But there's something just rapturous about coming back to Anna after you deal with the other characters because you know it it really just does drive the story like what is she literally what is she going to do like from one day to the next yeah Um, and you know I think to your point about being without passing judgment on her she is a very likable person although on Twitter there was some discussion whether the male readers found her more likable. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. So. That was the sort of an accusation people were making. Or yeah, because of her looks and you know, <laughs> um, the way characters are taken by her and yeah. Um, but then you you have these things like she's she's intelligent. She's writing a children's book. Well, mm. This was the second time reading it for me, and I completely forgotten that. I mean, I remember that she's compared to Satan, but yeah. I <laughs> didn't didn't remember that she was writing and she you know spoke of the monotony of a moral life. Yeah, which there's just certain phrases and lines of hers that really stand out. So was the idea on Twitter that the men were kind of falling in love with Anna and they identified with her. And what was the objection that women had to her? Or was it just that because they weren't falling in love with her in the same way that men were, they didn't have that extra element that the men were providing? You know, I think it's because she's so taken by Vronsky Mm. Mm -hmm. and there, some of the female you know, readers were like, why, why, why? Oh, but then, yeah. but then, you know, you find out that Levin's, Levin eventually marries Kitty, mm-hmm. who is Anna's sister-in-law. Kitty was, before Anna, Kitty was very taken by Vronsky at a, at a dance. Right. And Vronsky has no intention of marrying Kitty, but is more than willing to sleep with her. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, and that that really speaks to just how the relationships are so intricate. Yeah. That you know, when you don't have the major tension between Anna and her husband and their son and fighting for custody, I mean, you have these all these little tensions where you know Kitty once loved Vronsky, mm. and Kitty admires Anna, and then Dolly has four kids. And so she feels like, you know, a little jealous of Kitty because she has no kids and Anna because she only has one. And right. Dolly, Dolly even makes a comment like, you know, oh, what are these these free spirits having one or two, only one or two kids? Hmm. So, <laughs> it but, sounds very it sounds very modern. I mean, if you told someone. If you didn't say the book was Anna Karenina and you told someone some people are reading a 19th century novel and men and women have a different opinion of the the female protagonist, you might expect people, I don't know if, I mean, people know that today's readers would probably be a little more uh, uh, subtle than this, but if, if you were talking about this debate happening in the 1980s, for example, you would probably right. think... Oh, here's what they're objecting to, or here's here's the point of dispute they're probably having is the woman is probably a housewife who's you know rejecting the restrictions that are placed upon her, and the men are probably all saying that you know she should just be happy with her fate as a you know uh, uh, someone who's at home all the time, and the women are probably saying no, she should be allowed to be free and and spread her wings, and instead what you're talking about in the uh, if she should fall for someone, and whether that's admirable or whether that's something 
you know, whether that's compelling or whether that's seems a little bit foolish, that it's a very different kind. I, I feel like that novel could be written today. Yeah, I mean that. So that was my second thing I was going to say that the the book, the whole Oprah picking the book. I, I think mm. the book is an incredibly engaging love story. Mm. I think yeah. you know, and it's funny when I think of like a book like English Patient. Mm-hmm. To me, um, the movie and the book are so different because the book is to me is not a love story at all. Yeah, <laughs> I mean the the. So the, the the scenes that stand out in the the book for me are like being in the plane and the the changing borders and to me it's like this really lyrical work, whereas you know the movie is just like Ray Fiennes, Kristen Scott Thomas falling in love. Yeah. Um, but Anna Karenina is truly a love story. I mean, they they the first time Vronsky sees Anna is at the train station. Mm. You know, he sees her the way probably many of us have seen someone and just been taken by them. Yeah. I mean, it, the 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 way Tolstoy handles things that are very commonplace, you know, falling in love or being happy or unhappy or not wanting kids or, you know, having to host a party. I mean, they're, they're so well crafted and they seem very Russian to me. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems so much like you're being transported. And I think Oprah, to her credit, really felt like, you know, for 800 pages, this is this is a bit of a fast read. Yeah. Yeah. Right. OK, so you uh, skipped over me a little bit here. So I will <laughs> I will inject my uh, number one, which was uh, Tolstoy's hate love relationship with Anna Karenina. While he was writing, it was being serialized, as so many works were in the 19th century. And when part of it had been published, he said, quote, I loathe what I have written. The galleys of Anna Karenina now lie on my table, and I really don't have the heart to correct them. Everything in them is so rotten, and the whole thing should be rewritten. All that has been printed, too, scrapped and melted down, thrown away, renounced, end quote. <laughs> wow talk and, about a harsh critic yeah and then uh a year later he said that it was his first true novel oh right he liked it he he thought it was good and and that's the quote that i read before about in order for a book to be good one has to love its basic fundamental idea and then you know toward toward the end of his life i'm not even going to count that when he kind of rejected all of his own novels as being bad art because right. he had developed this new theory of what literature should do that it needed to the work needed to have the ability to infect its audience with a moral sensibility. And that's what led him to reject Shakespeare and, and Chekhov. He had this great line to Chekhov where he said, your plays are even worse than Shakespeare's, (laughs) (laughs) which is pretty great. Okay. So I, I don't know if I cut you off. Were you done with your number two of the, uh, this being a love story? Yeah, no, I I think that, I mean, it, it over. I was going to just say that it overshadows the whole, you know, family versus career. That's also one mm. of the major major themes yeah. uh, in this, and happiness through your, uh, you know, some kind of hobby or endeavor or ambition. Mm. There's a great section with Levin uses a scythe. Mm. Yeah, is farming <laughs> yeah. and getting to know the peasants and yeah. wakes up. And does a full day's work before his brother gets up. Um, that passage, more than any other, I feel like gave me an insight into Tolstoy. Yeah, I mean, it's... It just feels like that's what he wanted, and and his whole life he he had that pull. He felt that pull, and that's yeah. where it's most beautifully expressed, I think. I mean, there's something about, like, you know, I think it's either Seamus Haney or... Stanley Kunitz says, you know, that the keys to life are, I mean, they're both poets, but they said the keys to, you know, longevity are poetry and gardening, Mm. Uh, you know, working, working the land. There's, there's something immensely satisfying about it in a way that, you know, that there is then like, you know, you know, building a house. Shout out to our listener in Brazil who uh, is listening to this podcast while she's 
working the land. She gave up her life in the city and she moved out to the country to some land that her family owned. And it's been kind of a rough go for her because, because she's trying to to do things the right way and, and pay the workers a reasonable wage and and not exploit the land and not poison the land with chemicals and that kind of thing. So she's uh, hopefully things are going well for her. She would probably like these passages of Anna Karenina. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, my third thing I was going to say is the way, I, I guess I'd forgotten this about Tolstoy generally, is both War and Peace and Anna Karenina have, it, it, they're broken up into hundreds of little chapters. Yeah, right. And it's just perfect for a book club. And so I, I started to love these little chapters that are, you know, standalone scenes almost. I just yeah. think it's, it's so clever that, you know, and it's a, it's a great way to introduce ancillary characters. Mm-hmm. The book probably, in a strange way, uh, has more shifts than War and Peace. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of comparison on tri- Twitter between the two books because I think the general consensus is was that Anna Karenina was a better book. Mm. But I think there was something, people kept mentioning the scope of War and Peace, but I almost feel like it's misleading because it's not exactly the scope of it. It's more that it's it just continues to expand mm. historically. Whereas Anna Karenina has these very subtle shifts that I found to be even wider in scope. Cause you would, you would focus on a character who was childless countess Lydia who loved Anna's husband and in one chapter, very memorable one, she, after Anna and her husband separate, Lydia, Countess Lydia tells Anna's child, the son who's living with Anna's husband, because that's the way it worked in Russia at the time, that her, that her mother, his mother is dead. Mm. And you get this like two page chapter where that happens. I, yeah. I just think it's like, it's, it's, and you get introduced to her and then she, she tells this horrible lie. And then you're you're back to Levin, working the land, drinking with peasants. So you would say that scope is erroneously defined as just being about like the sweep of history, or you know, broader in a geographical sense, nations fighting nations, uh, decades passing, that kind of thing. And instead, what you see in Anna Karenina is the scope expands. When the characters develop more or there's a wider emotional range uh, that's introduced by the author. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe some of it's my bias that Mm -hmm. I'd rather read about, you know, people going to the opera house Mm. and, you know, checking each other out than to read about like armies, you know, forging through (laughs) the forest (sighs) for, for pages. So. I mean, both both are examples from War and Peace. There's a great opera house scene in War and Peace. Yeah. Okay. So let me jump in here with uh, another point that I had noted, which was, and I wanted to ask you about, which is, uh, again, from uh, Sophia Tolstoy's diaries. She says, the conditions under which Anna Karenina was written were much more difficult than those under which War and Peace was written. Then we had undisturbed happiness. Now there died in succession three of our children and two aunts. I became ill, grew thin, coughed blood, and suffered from pains in the back. Leo became alarmed, and in Moscow, on the way to get cumis, he consulted Professor Zakharin, who said, It is not yet consumption, but her nerves may be shattered. And he added reproachfully, You have neglected her. He forbade me to teach the children or do the copying, and he prescribed a regime of silence. For a long time, I got no better, especially as we had to spend the summer on the Samara steppes in very inconvenient surroundings and living on cumis, which I could not drink. Miserable and ill, I wrote to my sister, Lev's novel is published and is said to be a great success. In me, it arouses strange feelings. There is so much sorrow in our house, and we are everywhere made so much of. Did you feel that do you, when you were reading War and Peace this time and Anna Karenina this time that, that Tolstoy was writing from a position of, of greater sadness? I think it's that they're, they're incredibly sad characters. In Anna almost, Karenina? In both. Oh, in both. They're, they're, yeah. yeah, they're almost pathetic um, yeah. because they're either through loss of 
a friend or a loved one or just this, this being dissatisfied with life. I mean, there Anna Karenina ends with Levin having these, you know, chapters ruminating whether it's even possible to be possible to be happy mm. and whether he should just shoot himself or hang himself. <laughs> I mean, it's um, and. I mean, he, he has money. He, he owns land. He's doing fine. He has a, he's just married Kitty and they've had a child and he's thinking of killing himself. Yeah. And so I think there's, the, I mean, I don't want to overstate the depression of some of his characters, but I think there is sort of this very philosophical, well, what is there to life mm. that's under, underneath both War and Peace and Anna Karenina and I think the easy answer would be well it's the fact that we're living in and we're doing things and to yeah. Tolstoy it's not enough yeah there has to be like a, he was already thinking ahead to his later theories maybe that there has to be some kind of moral component or or progress I mean Lynn Levin turns to religion because Kitty's religious and when they decide to get married, Levin turns to Kitty and says, I have this great confession to make. And I have these journals that accompany the confession, which explain my thoughts. Mm. Kitty is, is, <laughs> is grinning and saying, I love you. I love you. What could this be? And he goes, I'm an agnostic. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's just a great scene because she has to read all these pages and she starts to cry. and. Mm. Um, and that was based on a real, yeah, that really happened, right? It was like yeah. torture for Tolstoy's wife to have to read I, those. I mean, she, her, her, Sophia's diaries, I think, came out uh, in translation in the last like ten years or so, and I think it, it sounded like, you know, the last half of their marriage, she was quite unhappy. Mm, yeah, that he couldn't bother to. I think what I read was that he couldn't bother to say goodnight to her. Right. He didn't really check on her in the house. Yeah. And, and he would leave without telling her where he was. Yeah. And then he had all these rules. I, 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 on the War and Peace uh, Twitter feed, there, there were great. There, there were a number of academics who were participating, and they posted great articles and. There was an article about uh, Tolstoy's rules because he had all these rules that he wanted to follow. Mm. And one of his rules that really jumped out at everyone was he said, you, you should only go to a brothel once a month. So. <laughs> Not more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> more would really be an indulgence. That would be. Uh... <laughs> okay. Let me uh, read to you something from uh, Nabokov that uh, really gets at a really interesting question, I think. Mm. So he, he's got this paragraph. He loved Anna Karenina. He loved Tolstoy. He says he's the greatest prose writer in Russian. And he he gets very, is a very long passage on Anna Karenina, and he gets very deep into it. And I'll try to kind of paraphrase it a little bit so I don't read the entire paragraph. But basically, he's talking about the issue of morality and what what morality means in a novel. So he says, mm -hmm. it might seem at first blush that Anna was punished by society for falling in love with a man who was not her husband. Now, such a moral would be, of course, completely immoral and completely inartistic, incidentally, mm -hmm. since other ladies of fashion in that same society were having as many love affairs as they liked, but having them in secrecy under a dark veil. But frank, unfortunate Anna does not wear this veil of deceit. The decrees mm. of society are temporary ones. What Tolstoy is interested in are the eternal demands of morality. And now comes the real moral point that he makes. Love cannot be exclusively carnal, because then it is egotistic. And being egotistic, it destroys instead of creating. And it is thus sinful. And in order to make his point as artistically clear as possible, Tolstoy, in a, fl in a flow of extraordinary imagery depicts and places side by side, in vivid contrast, two loves, the carnal love of the Vronsky-Anna couple, and on the other hand, the authentic Christian love, as Tolstoy termed it, of the Levin-Kitty couple with the riches of sensual nature, still there but balanced and harmonious in the pure atmosphere of responsibility, tenderness, 
truth, and family joys. And then here's the sentence I wanted you to comment on. What are the implications? First, society had no right to judge Anna. Second, Anna had no right to punish Vronsky by her revengeful suicide. Hmm. Do you think that's right, that society had no right to judge Anna? I guess we could say that. But how is that? Is Do you think that's made clear in the novel? I think Anna is so sympathetic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, she and Vronsky make eyes at each other and hold hands in public and people comment and they compare to Satan. So they, they do judge her. It it seems like this class of society, these, these people are very judgmental mm-hmm. and very petty. And right. people are constantly scrutinizing each other. Yeah. Um, there's all this people on Twitter were obsessed with the way everyone's hands are described, <laughs> whether they're like small and innocent or large and clumsy. And... Mm. Yeah. <laughs> to Nabokov's thing about the, the two contrasting loves, the Levin Kitty love, I find that Tolstoy, he sets it up as mm-hmm. this Christian love and then he undercuts it mm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, like Kitty becomes friendly with this guy Varensky or I forget his name, but and Levin just flies off the handle. Yeah. And accuses her of adultery and like makes her cry and forbids her from seeing him. Levin is Levin and Anna kind of orbit their own worlds for many pages, hundreds of pages, and then finally on page like six hundred they meet. And what happens? Levin falls in love with Anna in the moment. Mm. And it's a stunning scene. Yeah, right. And Anna tells him, and then sort of Levin comes to his senses and says, like, you know, Kitty would have come, but, you know, she, she you know, she has the child. And, and Anna knows why Kitty didn't come. And Anna says to him, tell your wife that I am just as fond of her as ever. And that if she cannot forgive me for my situation, I wish her never to forgive me. To forgive, she would have to live through what I have lived through. And may God preserve her from that. Hmm. And Levin goes, certainly, yes, I will tell her, said Levin, blushing. And he runs <laughs> home and tells Kitty what a wonderful woman Anna is. Yeah. And she's just like, oh, my God, you know, you're under her spell. Uh, did it's, you yeah. Did yeah, you feel I mean, then that with all this sympathy for Anna, did you feel, did you agree, do you agree with Nabokov that Anna had no right to punish Vronsky? I just don't think Vronsky is such a big catch, a good catch. Yeah, and I right. just, I, I kind of don't care what happens to Vronsky. <laughs> I mean, he, right. he likes to go bear hunting. He likes to go drinking. He's into women. He he's obsessed with ha- getting a bullshit job that pays him more. And the the job title, I wish I could remember it. It's hilarious. It's like the 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 leader for the center of the median of progressive societies throughout the centuries or something like that. It's like the most ridiculous title. And uh, I mean, he's just, I don't really know if he even gets punished because once it happens, we get this like offhand remark that he's like, he he was, you know, thrown off, thrown off balance that he's, you know, unnerved for a month. Yeah. Then it's actually his, his mother that approaches Anna's family and says, like, how dare Anna ruin my son's life? Yeah. So. Well, that's that's kind of the Nabokov sentiment, I guess. I guess that's kind of what he's saying, is that, yeah. that point of view. But I almost wonder if, I mean, my takeaway from the novel was less that she didn't have a right to punish him in that way, and more a, it is an unfortunate misconception that in doing so, she would be punishing him. That that this was a that that's a course of action that anyone should take. I, I just think suicides to punish other people it's misthought. Yeah, I mean, I I I think for I mean, the, the, there are a couple of moments where Vronsky wants to make things right. He and Anna have a child, and he pushes her to get a divorce so that the child can be theirs. Mm-hmm. But then the way he reacts to her he doesn't want to be crowded in by her it's funny because again like to the oprah point that there are these cliches like he doesn't want his freedom impinged on by her Mm. and there's this very like 
dating scene cliche where she he stays out late and she's pissed that he hasn't called or sent a note Mm. and he comes home and she's furious and he freaks out and he's like really i i'm supposed to lose my freedom (laughs) (laughs) and it's like well do you like her or not i mean you know your relationships are compromises i mean what (laughs) <laughs> i mean do you want to just sit on the couch and eat pizza and drink beer all day like i mean what so it's like I, the, I, uh like the curb your enthusiasm episode where larry's wife talks about how they're going to be together in heaven and larry, and larry is like wait wait we are <laughs> and he was like i didn't know this was you know eternity she was like well yeah forever you know and, and he was like and she was like, don't you want to be together for eternity? And he's like, well, for eternity? <laughs> I didn't know that was part of the deal. Uh, okay. Uh, what else have you got? We're running. Uh, we're getting toward the end here. So I'm going to skip my yeah. last one, but I'll give you a little taste of it. But um, do you have anything else you want to do first? I, I was going to say that the symbolism um, really strikes me the second time because I'm not, I know what's going to happen. Mm. Um but I think the trains, yeah. the farming, the religion and atheism, mm. I, I, I found Dolly to be a fascinating character. That's Anna's sister-in-law who's married to Anna's brother. She really kind of struggles with being a mother, having being weighed down by four children mm. and just just feeling that she's not her own person. Yeah. Oh, it's incredibly, it, it's incredibly moving her, her chapters and they pop up here and there. And I, I think that kind of that kind of symbolism is really rewarding the second time you read it. I mean, it's the novel is so tightly constructed. Mm -hmm. You forget how much he balances Anna and Levin, because I think the takeaway in a lot of people's minds are, you know, it's really, you know, the novels about those two. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, my last thing, I was going to walk through some of the films that have been made for Anna Karenina. There's been, I would say, there have been a couple that have been successful. One hugely successful one with Greta Garbo in 1935. That's sort of the most famous version. But there have been many others as well. And there have been a lot of flops, including the Kira Knightley version (laughs) that came out recently. But what I was going to ask you is, if you were making this as a film today... Would you do it as a two-hour film or a three-hour film, or would you do uh, a ten-part Netflix series? Uh, yeah, I would do the latter. I would do it. I think the Russian production by Sergei Bondarchuk was the one that I actually I, I own that and I rewatched it mm. while I was reading it. But a number of people were watching it. It was the most expensive movie ever made in Russia at the time, mm. and the government paid for it, and they. Like, for example, during the hunting scene, the director had like 100 Borzoi dogs brought in. I mean, it's (laughs) everything was like very authentic. And I I think you have to you have to focus on the details in, you know, Anna Karenina and War and Peace rather than the plot points. Like the Sergei Bondarchuk, there's a great scene where I forget her name now, uh, Natasha, Natasha Rostov sees two older teenagers kissing mm. and superimposed on them is are all these lights and this faint outline of a tree. And then the next scene, she's kissing. And it's stuff like that, that I think that's to me, that's Tolstoy is, is, is that kind of sensual detail. And it's not the plot points, you know, where... Right. Pierre is joining the Freemasons. Right. You know, to cover all that stuff. It's... And I think that's why when you were saying how this is deeply sad and and it's got such, it's soaked in so much sorrow, I was thinking, but when I read it, I, I feel a kind of ecstasy. And I think it is because of those <laughs> moments. It's glorifying life in all of its many facets. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's definitely something you can read every year. And it's probably... One of these books that I, I find rereading books very rewarding, but this book, the second time, felt it made me yeah, it made me happy reading yeah. about other people's sadnesses. 
Well, William Faulkner did read it every year. Okay, <laughs> so let's leave things there. Mike, as always, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to our emailers and to Leo Tolstoy and, of course, to Mike Palindrome, El, Pe El Presidente, for joining us. Hang in there, dear listeners. We're getting through this together. We'll have another Shakespeare sonnet on Thursday, I think. Although, don't hold me to that. Every time I promise something, I blow it. I'm like the Sex Pistols. Wasn't that their line? Whenever there was an opportunity, whenever we were on the verge of success, whenever there was a chance for us to grab some glory, we blew it. <laughs> Every single time, we blew it. I don't think I have a lot in common with the Sex Pistols, but I certainly can identify with that. So, let's end things on a positive note here. We are a member of the Podglomerate. That's a good thing. You can learn more at www thepodglomerate.com Lots of good stuff they're working on over there at the Podglomerate. Check out their other podcasts when you get the chance. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Universe.